Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, happy holidays, happy winter solstice. Whatever the celebration that you do in the month of December, I wish you a happy celebration of that. For me, it's Christmas, and I love Christmas. You go out to twitter.com slash kernelinux. Check out my Twitter, the, the tweet that I just came out with. It is me in my Christmas attire. In, uh, in the little broadcasting booth that we set up here at home just a couple of feet from the Christmas tree so we can do the show live. Of course, the phones are open because we are doing a live show, one 855 That's 855-450-6624. Again, the email, live at We've also got our interactive mumble room. Those guys are joining us. You can join us as well in the interactive mumble room. Hey, mumble room, welcome. Thanks for taking time to be here on Christmas. Hey, Noah. Good day, Merry hey. Christmas. Yeah, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. And, it, you know, it's it speaks well to you, the, to your character that uh, Linux ranks up there uh, as well as Christmas. We're happy to see that. Now, we've got a, a couple of things to get to. Uh, Jason Plum is going to join us later in the hour, um, and he is going to talk to us about Kubernetes. So if that's a technology that you've had some interest in and want to learn what you can do with it or some of the cool things you can do, we are uh, we're going to chat about that, and it's going to be a great time. Now, before we go any further, we would be remiss if we didn't if we didn't call out some attention to a former Fedora project leader who recently passed away, Gafton or at Gafton on Twitter, the Fedora project announced that he has passed. And so our condolences go out to his friends and family. And obviously uh, we wish um, the entire Fedora team uh, as much comfort as can be had in a, in a time of sorrow, especially at this time, December is always a rough time to lose somebody because, um, it's supposed to be a happy time, and so that's it's a particular loss. So, and as huge Fedora fans, obviously the Fedora community is less lesser without him, and so we just thought we'd mention that. Now, if you uh, if you're sitting at home at Christmas, if you're a geek, hopefully you are having a geeky Christmas. Hopefully you are doing some fun things with technology and with geeky toys. I know I am. We purchased my kids a uh, Nintendo Switch. And the thing about the Nintendo Switch is it is more cloud-based than I would have preferred. We got the thing home, and I'm going through the traditional or the typical geek setup process, right? Because as geeks, we're expected to set all of these things up for our kids. And, uh, and so we did that. We kind of went through that requisite process, kind of set some of that stuff up. And uh, I get everything unplugged, I pl- or, uh, unpackaged, plug all of the cables in, get the thing booted up, and I go to install the first game, which, by the way, is 59 freaking dollars. I don't know what you people... How do you people at Nintendo sleep at night selling games for $59? Like, the games are a quarter of the price of the whole freaking unit. It's unbelievable to me. But we bought uh, Super Smash Brothers, which is a fantastic game, and even though it's $59... It's a great game. So we bought this game for $59, and uh, the kids are sitting down in the television. They're ready to play it, and then we wait because the message says that we have to wait for the game to download. So I'm thinking to myself, 
oh, it should take two, three minutes, right? Two and a half hours. Two and a half hours to download this game. I don't know how big Super Smash Brothers is. I don't know if it's like 60 gigs, but it should not take two and a half hours to download a game. Nintendo, get on the Steam platform and start area, you know, synchronizing your games around to other people that have Nintendo so that I can download the game from them and not from the one of three servers that you have in Japan. It's painful, especially on Christmas Eve when my kids are trying to play with this gift. It's crazy. Of course, my alternative is to go buy the actual cartridges. I was happy to see that you can decloudify yourself and play the game strictly just on the little cartridges. But I had a good friend of mine who who owned a Nintendo Switch, and he gave me a, a, a heads up. If you purchase a Nintendo Switch, download the games, do not buy the cartridges. And he says that because the cartridges can get lost. Turns out if you, anything happens to the games that, that you buy on your Nintendo account, you just log in and re-download them. Also makes it nice if I ever get a second Switch, then you know they then those games can, I assume anyway, can be played on on both consoles. So that was kind of my uh, my Christmas rant so far. All the other technology has worked really really well. In fact, one of the things that I got my son that will appeal to the retro nerds it, uh, among us, if you ever played on an Apple IIe, chances are you played the game. Oregon Trail. In fact, watch this. Mumble Room, who in here has played Oregon Trail on the original Apple IIe? Oh, come on. Me, Some of you have. I have used the Micro B, Commodore 64, and Apple IIc. Okay. I don't remember. But you've not played Oregon Trail? Uh, no. no. Now, Eric? I played a computer rewrite uh, back when I was in high school. You've all been deprived of your childhood. I want you to know that your parents have failed you and we should turn them into child protective services. It's unacceptable that you've not played Oregon Trail on the Apple IIe. The Oregon Trail was one of the best games on the Apple IIe. It was really the only game at that time on the Apple IIe. And uh, I grew up playing with it. And I found that it turns out in 2018, we can fit the amount of computing power that used to exist in the desktop Apple IIe into a small pocket-sized unit. And so that's, in fact, what the the creators of Oregon Trail have done. They have packaged that entire game into a small pocket unit, and that unit they now sell for $29 at Walmart. So I bought my kids a pocket version of Oregon Trail, and the thing is actually really neat. It has all of the actual controls that you would need to, uh, to do Oregon Trail. In addition to that, though, it has a full, you know, uh, looks to be a TFT color, excuse me, TFT color display uh, built right into this little pocket unit, and the thing, the whole thing is selling for like 30 bucks. I was pretty impressed. So that that was pretty amazing to me. So kudos to the people who set that up. You guys are doing a bang-up job, and, uh, and thank you for bringing back some nostalgia to my childhood. And despite the fact that my son got a, a Nintendo Switch this year, he also still had some interest in the, uh, in the Oregon Trail. So... I thought that was pretty cool. Again, phone lines are open, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Fred joins us from Brazil. Hey, Fred, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. This is Fred from Brazil. I've been listening to this show since the first episode, and I love it. So my question is regarding email. I'm, I ditched Gmail because I was concerned about privacy, and I think uh, we should all, that's my opinion, and we should all try to avoid these services in order to not to make them them stronger. So I, I'm, I'm using another service, uh, which I have to pay to use, which is okay. It's not that expensive. And uh, But I have a limited uh, quota. Eh? I, I, I have a limited space. Uh, 
there, which is going to get full eventually because I receive a lot of emails. So I'm trying to find a way to archive these messages in another place where they won't be taking space. So here's what I thought. I could have the messages automatically exported from Thunderbird to an encrypted folder on my hard drive which, which would be synced to the, to the cloud because I have uh, an unlimited Google Drive from work because I have G Suite for education. So I thought I would use Cryptomator, which is a, which is a program that creates encrypted vaults. And then this, this vault would be on my Google Drive. Then I, would, I could access the messages from mobile. So uh, just to recap, the idea is to have the, the messages automatically exported to an external folder, probably in plain text format, if it, could, if it would be possible. And then this folder where the, mes where the messages are exported to would be encrypted uh, and then synced to the cloud. Do you think it's possible? Do you know how, how I could do this uh, on Thunderbird or another way of doing this? Well, thanks a lot. I hear where you're coming from. I see where you're going. I think you're on the right track, but we have to make some tweaks along the way. So I'll tell you just uh, most difficult thing first, where you lose me completely is when we get to mobile. Trying to get something encrypted on a desktop, synced around the cloud, and then to open that on mobile, I don't know how you're going to I don't know how you're going to pull that off. If you're going to pull that off, it's going to be with something like, uh, you know, UB ports. It's probably not going to be Android. I'll just tell you that right now. If that's how we get there, we get there. But I don't see how you're going to reliably be able to encrypt things on a desktop, especially in Thunderbird, and then try to get all of that to translate to mobile. So that's that's the most difficult, most far-fetched thing for, for me to, to, to wrap my head around. Now, if we can wind that back just a little bit, your basic premise of I want to pull emails off of my email server and I want to archive them in an encrypted folder on uh, on Google Drive. Yeah, absolutely. All four of that. In fact, there is a command line tool called fallocate, F-A-L-L-O-C-A-T-E, fallocate. And what you can do is you can specify a, uh, a dr essentially a file size and it will create a file um, that is is representative of a of a, as essentially a virtual drive, and so then you can go into your disk manager and you can mount that virtual uh, file, and uh, inside of there you can create a Lux encrypted drive, and so you could then sync that encrypted file to and from your desktop back up to Google Drive and uh, store your. Thunderbird Pro, you could, it's actually, you could store the emails directly from Thunderbird, you could export them out, or you could store your entire Thunderbird profile inside of there, and then that would eliminate you from having to constantly, you know, save back out. You wouldn't have to constantly save all of the messages. Um, now, if you're syncing with POP3, it's going to pull them right off of the, your email server and store them into this drive. If you're, if you're doing this with IMAP, then it's going to do it live. So it's, it's just going to essentially be a sync between. Again, I don't know how we get to mobile there. But it definitely accomplishes your stated goal of I want to have email. I want to be able to store that on an encrypted volume and I want it safe from Google's prying eyes. So that's that's one way you could get there. That's what I would take a look at. Again, open phones this hour, 1-855-450-NO. That's 855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. A new piece of technology has come out that I think is really fantastic, and it is Whitewater Foundry. It's a company that promises to unleash the company's developers and their IT staff by giving them access to... You guessed it, Linux, Windows computer on Windows computers that you already have and manage. So the idea is this. 
you have all of these IT companies and development firms, and they have all of these Windows infrastructure computers, and they're looking around and they're saying, why does nobody use our own products? Why does nobody use our own operating system and our own tools? Why is everybody buying these MacBooks and, and Chromebooks and, and building their own Linux boxes and buying Dell XPSs? Why is that happening? And what they're finding is that developers want access to tools like Azure, Amazon Cloud uh, you know, tools, Apache, Docker, Git, Go, Node.js, OpenJDK, Ruby on Rails, and Rust. If you're a developer and you're working in 2018, you want access to these tools. And guess what Windows doesn't have? Windows doesn't have access to these necessary development tools. And so as a developer, even in a Windows world, even in a Windows-centric environment, what you're finding is that the entire world is moving towards Linux. If not on the front end, for sure on the back end, 90 plus percent of servers are already running on Linux. And so as these companies try to figure out how to keep their developers in-house and how to get them to use the tools and software and products that they control and all of that, what they're finding is they have to support these Linux environments. So this company, Whitewater Foundry, essentially comes in and for $100 per device with a minimum of 50 devices, so you can go ahead and do the math, on top of that, they want an annual support contract of $1,500. And what they will do is they will install Red Hat Linux or a, or a, 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 a container thereof of Red Hat Linux to automate your Windows tasks using Linux and Bash and Python and tie all of that into PowerShell and scripting language and, and weaving all of that together into a single cohesive platform. And what the, what the promise on their site the promise from this Whitewater Foundry is that you're going to be able to test test websites with a local LAMP stack and build cross-platform, cross-architecture tools. And of course, and get this, this is what this is what really drives it home for me. Compatible with Red Hat Enterprise Linux, the and this is a quote from their website, the industry standard enterprise Linux known for its reliability, security, and stability. I can tell you, I, everybody in the audience right now knows that that article just made my Christmas. Noah's a happy boy this Christmas because the world is starting to recognize Linux is superior, Red Hat is king. My work here is done. I don't know exactly how I feel about this White Hat Foundry. If I mean, th that's a hefty price to pay, especially for a bunch of tools that they didn't create, that they don't own. But I understand where they're coming from. I understand why they're making the decisions that they made. And I think that it, if nothing else, is a vote in Linux's favor. And I think that's a good thing. Now, we have a guest. He's standing by. His name is Jason Plum. He's the senior distribution engineer at GitLabs and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah show. Hey, Jason, welcome into the program. Hey, Noah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time to be here. So on Christmas, obviously, it's a little difficult to book guests, but you're taking the time. So we're very appreciative about that. And I want to kind of just start the new year um, talking about a technology that probably everybody has heard of, but maybe some people don't know the ins and outs of it. That is Kubernetes. Now, I remember the first time I heard the term Kubernetes, I was at a conference and it was everywhere. Everybody was talking about it and I had not heard of it before. It was new on my radar. And I remember, <laughs> I remember asking the gentleman, I was attending with, I looked over and I said, what's a Kubernetes? <laughs> we had a discussion about it. And, you know, and since then, obviously, they have taken kind of the world by fires. But but uh, but Jason, I know that you work with Kubernetes a lot at GitLab at your job. And, and 
you know, you're kind of an expert on it outside. So for the idiots among us, tell us just what is, what are Kubernetes? What, what is the technology and why is it useful? Okay, so Kubernetes uh, is actually the Greek term for a navigator. Uh, and the, the, the simplest way I can describe what the tech actually is, is it's a complete stack and platform for actually doing containerized workloads in a cleanly orchestrated fashion with resiliency and some automated scaling behaviors built in. There's a whole lot more in the depth, but the simplest is if you're going to run Docker containers and you're going to run more than one of them and have them talk to each other, if you want to do this by hand with Docker Compose, you've got to write the YMLs, you've got to do all the other things, and then you've got to keep a track of which one is on which server and how many of them you need and all this stuff. Whereas with Kubernetes, you can take stuff like that and go, here's my cluster. These ones have a lot of CPU and these ones have a lot of memory. Put the high memory jobs over here. Put the high CPU over there and give me five of these things and put a load balancer in front of it. And it just works because now you don't have to manually do all of that work. So it's almost like an open source container orchestration uh, system. It's for, for automating it. That is a very simplistic way to say it, but it's 100% accurate. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of Kubernetes? Like, how did it come to be? Why is it that we needed this? What was wrong with just managing containers by hand? Okay, so it's actually spawned out from, uh, believe it or not, inside of Google on their Borg project. Um, they've been doing containers in production and orchestration of them for an extremely long period of time. One of the reasons that we actually needed this is when people started moving to containerized workflows and started trying to apply the 12-factor application. Um, uh, when they started to do this, you had a problem where the complexity actually jumped when you had to have more than one instance of things and making sure that they're balanced across multiple regions or even across different cloud providers or even within your own clusters. You know, you might have one on-premise on one building and another one just a block away, but you want to have some failover built in. right? You With Kubernetes, you can build a cluster that's got nodes in both sides, and in the event that one side goes out, it just automatically retranslates everything across, and you don't have to fight with it. It just does it. So think of it as one of the things that Kubernetes is capable of is automated failover that you have when you have highly available VMs with things like Overt, that same thing can now be done with containers. Talk to me a little bit about what a pod is. What is a pod as it relates to Kubernetes? So a pod is the basic unit of work. Um, a pod defines what's in it, what it's, it needs in terms of access to the outside world, and the containers inside of that. So a pod is like one unit that you can then have one or more containers operating inside of. But that pod can be part of a deployment, which is you describing what a pod is and how many of them that it should have. It could be part of a stateful set, which manages that there will always be at least this one, and this one has an identity. And it, for a lot of the time, that means this one has this disk, and this disk will always be associated with it. So like stateful workloads like Postgres and MySQL databases go into those. Then you have jobs, which is the same thing as you would think from a cron or a batch job but they actually spawn pods as well. So any contained workload is put into a pod. So it's all, this is almost a way of compartmentalizing work for computers and then distributing that up. 
Right. I mean, that's what you're doing with containers now. But then you say you need two or three containers to put together to do a complete service and monitoring of that service. You put the three of those together. They can talk over localhost like they're on the same box. And then that thing is a component of work that you can then send out wherever you need it. Talk to me a little bit about labels and how they uh, they facilitate utilizing Kubernetes. Okay, so a lot of the commands that you'll run into uh, can be much <laughs> much more easily handled if you actually know what the labels are. Uh, okay. There are labels can be defined when you define what the pod is or the deployment or anything individually, and then you can operate based on the content of those labels. I mean, so you're accustomed to, to say, labeling multiple VMs with the same type, right? So you know that VMs, when you look at it, these ones are named in a specific way, say, by host name. So you know, oh, these are the ones that do web services because they're Web 01, Web 02, Web 03, right? Sure, sure. So instead, what you would do is you'd put label, web, and then maybe you split the way your website works. So you have web front end and web back end. If for some reason you need to restart all of your web's code base, you can say kube control delete and then use dash dash label and say web. And then you can then say have that restart all of your applications, but maybe you only need to change the front end because you you change the way your JavaScript works and you need everybody to reload it. Then you can do the same thing, but this time you can say, you know, label web and front end and then you would only be taking care of everything that's a front end pod but why this matters is when this is why i tell you about web 01 web 02 when it comes to vms is now you don't care how many you have or where they're at you can just say restart all of my front end nodes and Mm. it will take care of it that's all handled for you that's fantastic Mm mm-hmm so it's I a way of indexing and grouping things together so that you can actually logically sort them without having to care about what scale they're at or where they're at. One of the things that was most confusing for me when I first started digging into Kubernetes was just understanding the technology and the terminology. And so I appreciate mm-hmm. you taking the time to kind of break that, the, build, the individual building blocks down and kind of explain it. How about node, uh, a node or a slave? What does that do for us? Okay, so first off, let me describe what a node is. A node is a machine, okay? So I've got a three-node cluster, and that's got, you know, who knows what actually on it. A slave, and what you're referring to here, is you have a master and a master relationship for controllers for the cluster, and a slave is anything that is not a master, right? So think more less slave than worker node, Gotcha. So, for example, if you were to use Google's GKE, just one off the top of my head, when you say, I want a three-node cluster, it actually spins up three worker nodes, and they actually run the masters resiliently outside of your cluster. So that when you are using their web interface, you're talking to the masters, and then they're telling the individual workers what they need to do. This way you have resiliency that's their job to maintain for the controllers and then the nodes that's your job to contain when it comes to how much cpu or memory or disk that you actually need that's where the managed service comes into play 
it's essentially just a device that we can assign work to or that we're going to run and add into our available resources to assign work to. Exactly. How about and then a you can put labels on the nodes as well. So you oh, can you label can. the nodes, and then you can say inside the pod, you can say node selector high memory. And then when you create your nodes, you create a couple that are like 2V CPU but 16 gigs of RAM and label mm-hmm. those as high memory. And now the pods that want high memory will go to those nodes first. That's outstanding. It's interesting how they've put a lot of thought into this. Um, how about Kublet? So a Kublet is actually the process that actually runs and manages the node. It's what actually speaks the API to the other nodes and to the masters. Kublet is the thing that runs on the nodes that makes them a part of the cluster. Tell me a little bit about what uh, what you do with Kubernetes. Like, can you give me an example of something that you're you're running either at work or on your personal time or maybe both? Okay, so... At work, I've spent the, over the last year developing cloud-native Helm charts for GitLab to deploy. So we're still in the process of migrating all of GitLab.com's SaaS over to Kubernetes, but we're working on that. Personally, that means that I'm constantly doing tests and doing deploys to various providers because we want to be agnostic. That means that we do to Google, we do it to Amazon, we do it to DigitalOcean's got an offering now, and I tend to run Rancher here in my house because it's super easy. But I'm constantly creating charts and doing uh, layouts in terms of Kubernetes pods and deployments and these staple sets that I mentioned earlier to manage how everything works. So when I mentioned those webs and the databases, right? So... When you install GitLab in the Kubernetes cluster, you have a stateful set that contains your Git data because we always want that to exist and be well-named. But then you can say, I need you know, only one pod that's actually running doing my background jobs. But I know a lot of people are constantly getting to all these cat memes that they're posting in my comments, so I need to have three front ends and two of the back-end servers for the serving of cat memes, right? So when people are doing code, they've got dedicated service to do all their background jobs. But when people are just, you know, let's pass every cat meme we can find because this one's got a Christmas hat on it, then you can scale up just the components you actually need. Right? So people think GitLab is is just this little thing, but we have so much that we do as a massive application suite that I build the whole thing out and then I focus and do documentation and performance metrics on every single component. I think especially in the wake of Microsoft buying GitHub, I think your work at GitLab and the progress that GitLab has made and the market share that GitLab has acquired has not gone unnoticed for sure. I would definitely say it hasn't gone unnoticed. Um, Just since then, uh, the recognition of what we do well beyond just the Git flow has really become proficient throughout the communities. It's hard for people to say, oh, that's all you do, because they realize now that we do so much more. Right. Well, and I mean, at AltaSpeed Technologies, we switched whole hog. Uh, when that when that decision was announced by Microsoft to acquire GitHub, uh, we, we moved all of our projects over to GitLab. And what we found is that um, what, you, what you get is is better for for the price and of course you and i have talked about that a little bit in the in the past and I don't, we don't need to rehash all of that but suffice to say it's a better value for your money and you guys actually value open source principles 
Yeah, it's one of our key components of who we are as a company and for most of us at the, the company as employees. We like to work in the open and we believe that open source is the way it should be done, but we're also very transparent about how we do it. So we're not taking this thing that we call open source and chucking it over the wall. We're working actively with our community, both as contributors, as users, as documenters, all everything across the board. And this is just how we work and how we think everybody should be able to work. And it's one of the things part that of your we company, like ethos. most, yeah, it's a, it's a key component. But one of the things we like most about Kubernetes is that it, you actually get that kind of sight and clarity and do every aspect of it. I was just at uh, KubeCon in Seattle, uh, what, week and a half ago? And the breadth and depth of the community that came to go to various talks, uh, the people that came by the, the booth that we had, the developers as well as press people that I spoke with, I'm really impressed by the depth of people that are actually there, the, the and the wide swath of skill sets that are available. So, they had you know users that are starting to use it at their job that came to learn as much as they can about how to use it. I got to t sp uh, speak to engineers directly from Google and Microsoft and DigitalOcean and everybody in the community, and I could just have them all in one place. It was absolutely spectacular. That sounds fantastic. I don't want to. I don't want to derail too far from Kubernetes, but I do want to talk a little bit about Rancher OS, if you don't mind. Um, so Rancher OS, it's a it's a lightweight uh, it's a lightweight operating system specifically designed for containers. And actually, we talked um, with uh, Chris last week, uh, I believe it was, and we talked about uh, the 11.2 release for FreeNAS. And so I just wanted to kind of touch base with you a little bit and and say. You know, what is it you said that you are actually running this inside of your home? What led you to Rancher OS and why should somebody maybe check that out? Well, for me, actually, I'm not using Rancher OS. So I do apologize to the guys at Rancher that I met last week. I'm not actually using Rancher OS. I'm actually using Ubuntu uh, with a minimal install, SSH installed, and then I used a tool called RKE. Um, and that will actually go out and give you a very easy, simple configuration. I have two VMs running inside of Beehive. So all I did was spawn them up, run updates, install my SSH keys, and then run RKE up. And I ran that from my laptop and it spawned an, a Rancher Kubernetes engine cluster on those two nodes with me having to do basically nothing. And now I had a working Kubernetes cluster in my house. Uh, and then once I had that up, I actually installed the Rancher 2.0 directly into that cluster, so it's self-managing. There obviously are a number of reasons to to go with a different base operating system. I, I've done that myself numerous times, particularly if there's something I can cram. If I have to shoehorn something into CentOS, I will do it because I'm very comfortable with that platform. I'm very comfortable with Red Hat's track record. But why the choice to, to, to install Rancher on top of Ubuntu rather than just use Rancher OS? Honestly, the first thing was I'm just more familiar with a streamlined Ubuntu than I would be with Rancher OS. Uh, so I have nothing against Rancher OS, and I just hadn't had time to try it. I knew exactly how baseline Ubuntu worked, so I went with that because it was a tool I knew, and I knew I could trust to be stable. So, oh, it makes perfect sense. You talked a little bit about what you do at work with Kubernetes and the power that it has for a company like GitLab. 
talk to me a little bit about what the average person might do with Kubernetes. If there's somebody out there and they're listening to this episode and maybe they don't work for a company, maybe they don't use open source at work, but maybe they're a geek inside of their basement and they're playing on their Ubuntu laptop, that's their second machine, and they're hearing about this technology and it sounds really cool. They say, I want to orchestrate some Kubernetes, even though I don't have a business reason to do so. What's something simple somebody could get started with playing with uh, Kubernetes? Um, honestly, some of the, the straightforward examples are spurning, uh, spinning up WordPress with a, with a database right out of the box. Um, something that I'm looking at doing in my time off in the coming week is actually moving my Unify controller from my desktop and putting it into Kubernetes inside of my cluster. So any workload that you can run in a, a clean and containerized fashion can be put into Kubernetes, and there's a large very large number of applications already available to do that with. Are you able to move Kubernetes from one host to another? So let's say you set up your Unify controller. Let's say you had set it up with Kubernetes in your house, and uh, and now you're going to move it to maybe a VPS on DigitalOcean or OVH or whatever. Is it possible to, to just pick up that container and move it to a different node? Well, you wouldn't store the data inside the container. Okay, So you would... One of the things that Kubernetes does well is allow the isolation between the running application container and the data that it would make use of, whether that's getting to a database or storing files. We isolate those things separately. So you can put the same exact pod definition in another provider and then send your data up, and that would work just fine. You'd have to change the host name, of course, but should work. I have literally taken a GitLab instance that is a standard VM backed it up and restored the backup directly into Kubernetes. And it ran exactly the same as soon as I updated my DNS records. That's fantastic. How about the the uh, Kubernetes ability to interface with other uh, platforms, as it were, utilizing their API? Oh, yeah. So very commonly when you're using a cloud provider, so whether you're using Google's offering of GKE or Amazon's EKS, right? They have built-in plugins to be able to make use of, say, GCP's disks or an EFS or EBS or S3. So you can actually use uh, RKE, for example. You can spawn nodes inside of uh, EC2 instance. That's it. You okay. can spawn up multiple EC2 instances and point RKE at those and then install Ranger over the top, and then you can then configure that cluster to talk to the providers for the APIs so that you can assign EBS volumes to your various pods. So, like, you can actually have an EBS volume that you've had for a Unify server, as an example, right? So whatever your backing disk was, mm -hmm. you can actually turn around and use that inside of your Kubernetes cluster because you already have the disk data on it, all you end up doing is going, hey, this is my disk. It's called a PV or persistent volume. And you say, this is its name over here in AWS. Attach this to this deployment. And then all of a sudden, now you have all the data you had from a VM present inside of your running container. That's awesome. That's awesome because it turns, it means that we're getting to a point. Oh, well, we've reached a point. We have actually been there for a little bit, but we've reached a point where computing instances and where servers and all of this have become so modular that we can move them around and containers like Kubernetes allow us to do that. In fact, are you familiar with Spring Cloud? Yes, I have heard of it. Spring Cloud is essentially a popular library 
of tools that were actually it was originally developed by Netflix. Uh, Netflix open sourced a lot of the tools that they that they developed to run their infrastructure. And so prior to Kubernetes existing, uh, Spring Cloud was essentially the alternative. And so it's been really neat to watch large companies like Netflix continue to open source their workflow, continue to open source their tools. And then, and I talked about this on a previous episode of Ask Noah, to watch open source tools uh, evolve and become so modular because what we learn from one tool set, then we then essentially we stop and we say, okay, what do we need to fix? We fix a couple of things and then we re-implement it and, and it kind of gets a second wind. And to watch that evolution happen has been absolutely fantastic. Yes. And I have to commend Netflix for going out with the open source work that they've done. Uh, the integration they've done with Spring Cloud, their automation system that they created called Spinnaker. So They've, they've really stepped forward with that, and I, I appreciate the improvements that they've done for BSD when it comes to the network stack. Yeah, they've, and it's great to watch these, these companies that not only are utilizing open source technologies, but then contributing back to those open source technologies, and then kind of as a side bonus, you know, working to implement their services on all platforms so that today we can watch Netflix on Linux. Exactly. I remember when that was hard. Glad they fixed that. Yeah, with plugins and all sorts of things. For a time, I was running it in a VM. Then I canceled my Netflix subscription altogether. So no, I'm I'm very happy to see that. Well, Jason, thanks so much for taking the time to, to be here. If people want to learn more about Jason Plum, GitLab, or uh, Kubernetes, where can they go? That's a long list. Uh, you can find me just about anywhere on the internet by Warheads SE. Uh, that's my handle on GitLab. That's my handle on Twitter. That's my handle on GitHub. Uh, you will find references to it on LinkedIn. So. If you want to know more about Kubernetes, then my simple suggestion is going straight to the source and going to Kubernetes itself, uh, which is Kubernetes, I believe it's I.O. Uh, GitLab can be found at GitLab.com, and there's a lot of interesting things that you can get from there. Jason Plum, Senior Distribution Engineer for GitLabs. Thanks so much for, t- for taking the time to come on the Ask Noah Show. We'll get you back in the program real soon. Thanks for having me. One of the things I want to do as we say goodbye to 2018 and say hello to 2019 is improve the show and bring more value to you, the listener, because I understand that there are the vast majority of you that listen to this show are the commuting Linux working class, the people who make their who make their dime off of working on Linux. And what I think is lacking is tight, concise presented news. And I would like to do it myself, but frankly, I'm no good at it. I was no good at it with last. I'm no good at it on destination Linux. And I'm fortunate with this show that I'm surrounded by a team of experts that do a very good job of picking out news stories for us to talk about here on the show. Because once I'm presented a news story, I can give you my opinion. I can break something down and I'm absolutely more than capable of going out and saying, Hey, here's the things I did in the week and something that I think might be interesting to the audience, but I'm no good at just sitting down and finding stories on the internet that are interesting to the audience. And, but uh, a good friend of mine, Eric, the IT guy, he is good at that. And so I want to work with other Uh, content producers to make this possible on the show so that this becomes the show that the working Linux class wants to listen to. And so that we have a point in the show where you don't have any opinion. All you get 
is the, hey, this is what happened in Linux this week. And maybe down the road, we make that an independent product. So what we're going to do at roughly the bottom of the hour, as close as we can get, depending on how our schedule works each week, we are going to bring Eric and to do a live news read. And so it'll be a, a two-minute segment, and he will just give us the roundup of what happened in Linux news. And then after that, him and I may, because he's connected, we may just have some back and forth and kind of discuss some of those topics if there's something that him and I have an opinion on and uh, and just kind of integrate it that way. But we're going to do a test run this week and then starting next week on January 1st, that will be part of our 2019 lineup having a, a Linux news read. So uh, let's go ahead and head over to Eric, the IT guy in the Linux Newswire newsroom. Here he is. From the Linux Newswire studio, this is the Weekly Roundup with Eric, the IT guy. Hey Noah, happy to be with you, and here are your Linux and open source headlines. Innovation with the universal packaging continues to smash through boundaries this week as the KDE Plasma desktop is now available as a snap package. According to an article available at linuxuprising.com, at this time this is a technology preview only and should not be considered for production use. A system only requires support for snap packages and Plasma does not need to be installed, nor will the snap replace any existing Plasma configurations. There are currently some limitations to the snap desktop, such as no support for Wayland, and you can only see other snaps, not applications installed on the host. However, the snap not only shows the power of universal packaging, but also gives the end user a chance to play with the Plasma desktop in a safe environment apart from their main system. This is a great way to see if Plasma will work for you in your daily workflow. Microsoft is again making headlines this week as they announce Project Mu, an open source UEFI alternative. Currently in use for the Hyper-V platform and the Surface line, Microsoft's hope is it will be the future of firmware as a service. The Redmond-based company forked Project Mu from the Tianacore EDK2, citing, quote, UEFI is not optimized for rapid servicing across multiple plat product lines. According to an article posted over at Phronix, Mu provides better security, high-performance boot, and a modernized BIOS-style menu with support for on-screen keyboards and UEFI settings management. Also back in the news this week is Mozilla with the announcement of Mozilla Labs. Sean White at the Mozilla blog asked readers to imagine a world where either at your home or favorite park, everything is connected, and the internet is available for you to speak and listen to directly. But the author warns that this future could be covered in ads and malware and require handing control off to companies with no interest in personal privacy. Mozilla Labs is intended to protect this future as computers and technology continue to spread to every corner of daily life. It is an online space for all to view and contribute to projects ranging from Internet of Things to AI to virtual and augmented reality. Projects like Common Voice and Firefox Reality have been moved to the labs to continue their mission. Finally today, friends of the show Destination Linux passes episode 100. Started in April of 2017, the Destination Linux podcast was started by, quote, two everyday guys who love running Linux. While the original hosts have since passed the torch to pursue other endeavors, its four current hosts have seen the podcast continue to grow. Destination Linux currently has over 3,300 subscribers on YouTube and many more that follow the audio version spread across the entire globe. This light-hearted podcast prides itself in being fun, informative, and family-friendly. Destination Linux follows the news, gaming, distributions, and the always popular tips and tricks section. Congratulations on episode 100, and here's to many more. For LinuxNewsWire.com, I am Eric the IT Guy. 
Thank you, Eric. That sounded absolutely fantastic. I am super excited to make that a permanent part of the program. Again, that will start the bottom of the hour uh, starting January 1st, and we'll have Eric every single week uh, to do those live news reads. Absolutely fantastic job, Eric. And uh, well, I want to get you back on the program to talk about some of your upcoming podcasts because I know you're starting some of those projects. And of course, we want to be a conduit to to um, to promote those as well. So a huge thanks to Eric, the IT guy. Make sure to check him out and uh, chat with them in the telegram group telegram.asknoahshow.com 1-855-450-NOAH that's 855-450-6624 the email live at asknoahshow.com remember our christmas day special it's ask me anything you can call and ask me today about anything you like it can be about relationship it can be about life advice i'll give you i can tell you what i know about car advice probably wouldn't recommend it the advice is worth what you pay for but you can ask me anyway and that's anything rather and that's our way of saying thank you thank you to you the audience for downloading the show for supporting the show for listening to us throughout the year this is our way of saying thank you that you can ask us anything if you don't have a chance to do it today on christmas don't worry you get another shot we're gonna uh do the exact same thing next week as part of our new year's episode so if you don't get a chance to do it today fear not you have an opportunity to do it next week so join us again 6 p.m central every tuesday even on Christmas and on New Year's. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I'm a geek, and on Christmas, that's my opportunity to play with toys. That's my opportunity to get away from work and play with stuff that I just want to play with. And so oftentimes, it turns into kind of an experimentation time. Now, of course, I'm spending the requisite time with family and eating dinner and doing all of those kinds of things. And of course, recording Ask Noah shows on Christmas. But while the kids are playing with their toys... And while they're just kind of hanging out, I'm sitting in the living room on my laptop looking for cool things to play with. And I came across something pretty neat that I'd not played with before. And it's a new it's an intrusion detection and intrusion prevention system called SELKS, S-E-L-K-S. Now, that's the software that's dedicated to running or that's the ISO rather that's dedicated to running the software Suricata. So SELF is both a live and installable network security management ISO. So it's based on Debian, and essentially you can either run it live to just kind of play with it, or you can do what I did and install it to a dedicated machine. Now, in my case, I'm running it on a VM, and so it's running on a libvirt-d hypervisor and running as a VM. But once you install this thing, it goes out onto your network and starts collecting data and then giving you, the administrator, reports on what's happening on your network. I found this thing to be remarkably cool. And the data porn aspect of it is fantastic because it graphs and sends reports and alerts of all sorts of things. It has a privacy-related alert functionality that allows you to be aware when pages are being loaded that lead to well-known sources of data collection like Facebook and Twitter and Google. And so the ability to have all of that in your network as kind of a, a dashboard almost, so to speak, I found to be incredibly valuable and really, really cool. So if you have, if you're looking for something to do this holiday season, if you're looking for something to play with, I highly recommend checking out Selks, S-E-L-K-S, uh, a live ISO dedicated to Suricata. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. Now, if that's not your thing, maybe you want to play with Steam Link. Now, we all know what the Steam Link is. The Steam Link was a device released by Valve, a small little device that you could plug into your TV and you could stream games from a more powerful Steam machine, be it Linux-based or even Windows-based. Well, 
the newest version of the Steam Link. This is actually something that's been out for a little bit, but it is code that runs on a Raspberry Pi. And so you have the ability now to run your Steam Link on a Raspberry Pi. That is really advantageous for us as geeks because I, 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 I did. I threw down for the money for a Steam Link. Okay. But there are a lot of people and even myself is included when it comes to buying stuff for my kids. I'm not putting a Steam Link in every every room in the house because, frankly, I'm just not that much of a gamer. You know what I have plenty of, though? I've got plenty of Raspberry Pis. So if my kids want to spend some time streaming some games from Steam on a Raspberry Pi, I'd absolutely let them do that. If the project ever becomes defunct, if they decide they're no longer interested, or if it ever just stops working as well as it does, I can always repurpose a Raspberry Pi 3 or Raspberry Pi 3B. But... This is a really fantastic way, and I think what it really does is exemplifies that Valve wants to be a part of the Linux community, not just the Linux infrastructure, right? Because they make their money on selling stuff, be it games, and they're trying to get into the hardware world. So if it's just about making money, it would make more sense to just get the price of these Steam Links down or... And, and try to promote more of them or start selling more of their consoles or kind of dig, dig their feet in that way. Instead, what do they do? They develop in-house this code that allows you to run the Steam Link on a Raspberry Pi, a device that is well known to gamers and geeks, and then they give it away and say, here, we're not even going to charge you for the code. You know, you could, because that's the other thing they could do too, right? They could charge 39 bucks and say, hey, you go to the Steam store, you download this code, or buy this uh, piece of software, it puts in a little activation code, then you can download the, the software package on your Pi and you can activate it and use it. They could totally do that. They didn't. Why? Because they want to be a member of the community. And their dedication to the Linux infrastructure, the Linux community, has been absolutely fantastic. And we talked about this a little bit on Destination Linux. So if you haven't checked out the latest episode of Destination Linux, that's episode 101, I invite you to do that. Michael Ryan... Uh, Zeb and myself kind of hashed this out and we just kind of said, hey, you know what? A collective thank you to Valve for bringing Steam to Linux and bringing all of the games that existed on, uh, on, on Windows over to Linux and promoting game manufacturers to run their stuff on Linux. So both of those things, both Selks and the Steam Link, are things that I would recommend that you check out during the holiday season. We all have some downtime. If you didn't have some downtime this week, hopefully you will next week over New Year's. These are the kind of things that I like to do. As far as it relates to Selks, this is one of those things where I think I'm going to make some money on it because after I get done testing it and after I get very comfortable with what the features and functionality of the system are, I'm absolutely going to go out to clients and say, hey, you know what? Have you ever been interested in monitoring your network? Because now AltaSpeed Technologies offers that service. Now we have a new tool in the toolbox to help you keep an eye on what's traversing your business network. And, um, and so that's, that's just a great way to do it. So we invite you to check both of those out. Again, links to Selks and the code for the Steam Link to turn your Raspberry Pi into a Steam Link. We'll have both of those in the show notes. If you're not checking out the extra credit section, you should because you're only getting part of the show. You can find that at podcast.asknoahshow.com. This week in the feedback section, we have an email from Andy. Andy writes in and says, Noah, for years I've used the routing functions that have came into whatever wireless router I was using. In my home, I have two routers set up as wireless access points, and the third acts as a router. It's an ASUS logging that redirects you to ASUS's website. I want to keep my home networking stuff under my control. I'm also not particularly happy with the interface of this wireless router. I want a solid, trustworthy router to turn my wireless router into a dumb access point. What type or brand would you recommend just to handle wired routing 
duties. Thanks, Andy. Well, Andy, uh, there's a couple of things uh, to touch on there. The first is that as users, we typically combine a number of different networking pieces of equipment into what is commonly known as the router. Now, you seem to have a pretty good handle on this, but for anybody that doesn't, we'll just step through it real quick. In a given internet connection, you're connecting from your cable modem's CTMS system or cable modem termination system. And on the other end of that, we have a cable modem. So that's how internet enters our house. Now, the problem with just a cable modem, and again, we refer to a bunch of things as a cable modem, but an actually true just a cable modem, if you were to plug into that, you would get an IPv4 or an IPv6 address live on the internet, a public IP address. And of course, unless your ISP is giving you multiple public IP addresses, then you need some sort of technology to uh, share that single connection to the world. And so that's where NATing comes in, which is traditionally where we start to use a router. And so that's the next piece of equipment that we have there is a router. And that's essentially what it's doing is it's taking all of the traffic in your home and utilizing NAT and uh, a couple of other pieces of technology are, are routing all of that traffic out to the ISP's network. And then on the other side of the router, we have a switch and finally an access point to handle Wi-Fi devices. Now we combine all, all of those pieces of equipment, the cable modem, the router, the switch, the access point, we combine them all into what we commonly refer to as a cable modem or just a router, and the cable company provides this for us. Also, traditionally, it has some sort of a firewall functionality built in. Um, so what I like to do is I tend to break those out. Now, in a business environment, it's absolutely required because we don't want any single point of failure. So in a business environment, if you're looking for the best of the best, no compromise device, um, we look at one of two items. One is Microtech, which I have recommended on this program since basically day one. And it's an absolutely fantastic product. The nice thing about Microtech is that you can purchase a brand new uh, router from Amazon with two-day prime shipping for like $35. And it will handle everything you'd ever need it to do in your home. Now, when you decide that you want to grow your network, or if you're like me and you want to use some of this technology in your home that you're also going to use in your business or for your clients, now you can go out and buy their upgraded version that has a slightly more powerful processor in it and maybe has a couple of more ports on it. But guess what? The operating system, router OS, exactly the same as the operating system that you're using on that small little $35 version that runs in your house. Of course, the bigger version with the bigger processor costs a little bit more, but the point is you can develop a real world skill set in your house that allows that and those skills translate outside of the house. Okay. The second uh, router or uh, edge platform that I would recommend taking a look at is something like PFSense. And we've not really talked about PFSense on this program a lot. I have used PFSense in, in some installations in the past. Um, my issue with PFSense for the longest time was that it was very difficult to purchase a out-of-the-box device that you could just use. It was, PFSense was traditionally designed, I guess sold, as the as an operating system that you would load onto a spare computer. And that's great if you're on a budget, not so great if you're working with contracts that require you to submit ahead of time, you know, where your vendors are and who is making this equipment and they want to do all their research and all this, that, and the other. Well, NetGate has come along and they manufacture PFSense routers, like a, a boxed version of PX, PFSense that 
1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard. Become a part of the program. Just a couple of moments left in the hour before we wind down. And I just want to end the program by saying thank you. Thank you to all of you who have supported us throughout the year, throughout 2018. Thank you very much to everybody who downloads the show, who provides feedback on the show, who give, leaves us YouTube comments, email comments, and of course, a special thank you to those of you who call throughout the year. Those of you who call the phone lines every week, you are the content. And so we want to say especially thank you to you. Now, in 2019, we've got some exciting changes coming. Obviously, with the show being independent, it means that we have some flexibility to expand and we plan to do that. Now, I am bringing on board a guy I've worked with back from the JB days and uh, who's been a close friend of mine for a long time, Mr. JT Pennington. He's going to join us next week for our New Year's episode as we discuss what we have coming in 2019. And I promise you, you don't want to miss it because it is a, it's going to be super exciting. And I'm excited to be able to expand the content that we that we bring to you. Now, that content was chosen by you, the listener, in the Geek Lab. The Geek Lab is our Telegram group that runs 24-7, 365. So if this show, the one hour a week that you get from the show, isn't enough, well, we invite you to join the Geek Lab. You can do that by going to telegram.asknoahshow.com. And it will, if you visit that website in a mobile browser, it will direct you to just go download the Telegram app. There's also apps available for Linux, Windows, Mac OS, the whole nine yards. And so you can participate in that group. We renamed it from the show, not because it, it we, we don't talk about the show. Obviously, we post about it every week and we let you know, you know, what's going on with the show. And I'm, of course, in there and, and discuss with listeners. But the truth is, the group is bigger than the show itself, right? We talk about the show once a week. The rest of the week, we just talk about Linux. And I think people like it that way. I think people like having a place to go that's just a Linux hangout. And that has become, I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm accurate in saying it is the most popular Telegram group for Linux related and open source content. And we're proud of that. We've done a really good job. And I think we've worked very hard at trying to cultivate that community. And so we're, we're proud of what, what has resulted from that. And there's a really, really powerful brain trust that is in there. People come in there with questions all the time and they say, I don't know how to solve this problem. I don't know how to solve that problem. How, you know, how are you guys doing this? It's also become a frequent place for business owners to swing by and say, you know, the Ask Noah Show community is the place for enterprise and business people, those that work in Linux, to kind of come and hang out. And it that got so popular that that actually spun off into its own group. That's the Ask, it's not really affiliated with the Ask Noah Show, but it is the small business group, certainly endorsed by us. We'll, we'll, call, we'll say that filled with Ask Noah Show listeners that talk about small business. And, uh, and then from there, we got the photography group, which has kind of spun off. And so that area of the community is something I am super proud of and invite you to be a part of as well. So make sure to join us there. Of course, as always, make sure that you're visiting the extra credit section. We're continuing to expand the content that we put in there. It's getting to the point where we put more articles in the show notes than we can actually get to in a given week. So if you're not visiting the extra credit section at podcast.asknoahshow.com, then you're only getting part of the show. Again, next week will also be an Ask Me Anything episode. So if you didn't get a chance to ask me your question and you want to ask me about relationship advice or car advice or whatever it is, feel free to ask me next week. We'll be doing the exact same kind of format again next week. That'll be our, our, our New Year's episode. And again, that's our way of saying thank you to you, the community, for participating in our shows all year round. That's, that's 
kind of a fun way to give back towards the end of the year. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to Ben, our producer, Sarah, our call screener. I'll also give a shout to Simon, who is the executive producer and fills in his call screener every once in a while. This hour of the show may be over, but we got plenty more content for you at asknoahshow.com. We'll see you next week. <laughs>